but there are still very few professionals who understand how giftedness impacts those diagnoses and how you have to interpret those different scales. And it's really frustrating when I have a kid who I know is twice exceptional and I send them and try to get them to go get an evaluation and wherever they end up because of insurance or who knows, whatever reasons. And sometimes they come back with a diagnosis that's totally off base because they haven't even done a cognitive assessment or they don't understand how those cognitive assessments influence things. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. On this week's episode, I'm talking with Emily Kircher Morris, a specialist in twice exceptional or 2E learners and a leading voice in the neurodiversity movement. With dual master's degrees in counseling and education, Emily has taught in gifted classrooms has been a school counselor, and is now in private practice as a licensed professional counselor, where she specializes in helping gifted and twice exceptional kids. Emily is the author of two books related to the development of 2E learners, Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom, and Raising Twice Exceptional Children, a Handbook for Parents of Neurodivergent Gifted Kids. She's also the president and founder of the St. Louis-based nonprofit Gifted Support Network and host of the Neurodiversity Podcast, which explores parenting, counseling techniques, and best practices for enriching the lives of neurodivergent people. During this conversation, we went deep into the stigma surrounding neurodivergent labels. We examined how the awareness of twice exceptionality has changed in school and screenings in the last decade and looked at the skills Emily considers to be important for parents to help their neurodivergent kids with. Emily also shared some powerful advice on how to be neurodiversity affirming that I think can change the way we approach these unique learners, both in our communities and in our classrooms. If you want to dive deeper into my conversation with Emily, please check out the show notes page on Tilt Parenting. There, you'll find a bullet-pointed list of key takeaways, a transcript of the whole episode, links to all the resources mentioned, and a podcast player with the episode broken down into chapters. So if you want to go back and re-listen to a specific piece of the conversation, you can easily find it. This week's episode can be found at tiltparenting.com slash session 274, or just go to the podcast tab on Tilt Parenting and click on this episode at the top of the page. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Emily. Hey, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, I've been on your podcast, Mind Matters podcast, which I think you changed the name to the Neurodiversity podcast. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yes, we did change that. We changed it back, well, in January of 2021, whatever year we're in now. And so I think it was a good a good opportunity for us to reach a bigger audience. Yeah, I agree. So I bet a lot of listeners have listened to your podcast and are familiar with kind of who you are and the work that you do. But I'd love to know a little bit more about your personal story and how you came to be doing the work that you do in the world. Could you share that with us? Sure. Well, I think so many of us in in the neurodiversity field or a lot of different fields kind of draw from our own life experiences. And, you know, I grew up as a, a kid, I was identified as 
um, ADHD when I was in fifth grade, and I was also in a gifted program. But that really was very confusing for me and for my parents and for my teachers. So um, when I went into the field of education, I knew that I wanted to make my classroom and the experiences for my students something that was different than what I had experienced. And, um, you know, so that led me to get a master's in, in gifted ed. And I taught in the gifted education classroom at the elementary and middle school levels for several years. But what I knew was that those kids who were twice exceptional were really still not getting the support that they needed. So I went back and got a second master's in counseling and family therapy, which has led me to opening my mental health practice where I work with kids and their families who are neurodivergent and um, specialize with, with gifted and twice exceptional kids, but not exclusively so because neurodiversity is such a broad range of, of needs. Um, and th- and that's kind of where where I am now, in addition to being a parent to three kids, two of whom are um, also neurodivergent and one who's just in first grade, but we're <laughs> we're starting to see some more of those signs that are a little more evident. Yeah, and I will say that tilt parenting isn't exclusively for parents of twice exceptional kids, although there are a lot of, of parents and caregivers supporting those kids who who are listeners. And that was a term that was just not on my radar when my guy was little, even though he had multiple diagnoses and labels and was gifted. So that was clearly his profile. But I'm just wondering, in the time that you've been focused on this, how have you seen the awareness of twice exceptionality grow kind of in mainstream schools? Yeah. You know, first of all, when I started my master's in gifted education, this was in like the mid 2000s, like 2004-ish, and twice exceptional was not even a term that we discussed in my master's level (laughs) courses in education. Now, we did talk about kids who were gifted and had other diagnoses, specifically more like dyslexia and um, ADHD. But even the awareness of, at the time, what was Asperger's, but now is just under that umbrella of autism, that has just grown so much over the years. So once I was in my, in the classroom teaching, I think I was probably closer to, I don't know, 2010 even maybe when I first really started to understand that term twice exceptional and what that meant and really started to see those kids. I was actually thinking about this the other day, and I don't want to get too specific about things, but I think one of the things that actually really influenced that change was when the WISC-4 came out and they started, they developed the general ability index where they took out the working memory and processing speed. I think that was something that actually really influenced the ability for us to identify these twice exceptional kids who had these advanced cognitive abilities, but maybe the working memory and processing speed, if they were you know, autistic or ADHD, were maybe... Um, pulling down those scores a little bit. And so I know that's kind of maybe doesn't, (laughs) that means something to some people who are probably listening, but not a lot. But it is kind of interesting to think about how that evolution has occurred over the years. And even now, um, I think that, I think that schools are really just beginning to understand that twice exceptional kids exist and are in their classrooms. Yeah. I mean, I think about when Asher was first 
undergoing, I think his first evaluation or neuropsych when he was maybe five. And the giftedness piece of it wasn't even part of the, is it the ADAS? Um, How can you not consider all of these pieces together? Like these kids aren't operating in a vacuum and it's fascinating to me. And, And I have seen such a change. I mean, that was now 12 years ago, but I feel like there has been an evolution in terms of the way that we're even evaluating kids. Yeah. And I know that I have a lot of clients who are looking for diagnosis. So I'm a I'm a mental health counselor. So while I do some basic assessments and I do a lot of observational, like I just kind of know what I'm seeing a lot of times, but I don't necessarily do like a full differential diagnosis in my practice. That's not part of what's within my scope of practice. But there are still very few professionals who understand how giftedness impacts those diagnoses and how you have to interpret those different scales. And it's really frustrating when I have a kid who I know is twice exceptional and I send them and try to get them to go get an evaluation and wherever they end up because of insurance or who knows, whatever reasons. And sometimes they come back with a diagnosis that's totally off base because they haven't even done a cognitive assessment, or they don't understand how those cognitive assessments influence things. There's a lot of research out there. Megan Foley, Nick Pond up at the University of Iowa actually is doing some stuff with how kids don't end up qualifying because their their giftedness compensates and they don't meet diagnostic criteria. But that doesn't mean that they don't need those supports. And, and sometimes, I mean, labels, you can talk about labels all you want, but Sometimes a label is necessary to get kids the support that they need. And if we're missing kids, we're missing that opportunity. Exactly. Well, I actually do want to talk about labels with you. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I know that you are passionate about destigmatizing neurodiversity and labels that everyone is afraid of giving or afraid of having. And I would love to talk about that a little bit more. Labels is something that comes up a lot. I get asked the question all the time do I need this label? Should I tell my child? What will this mean? Could you share some of your thoughts on stigma and and labels within the neurodiversity field? You know, I think it's such a personal journey for people. And there's so much misunderstanding about different diagnoses. But I, I think where I've kind of landed with it is recognizing that Labels are a tool to both build self-awareness and understanding in somebody who is neurodivergent and to access supports and to give the language for self-advocacy. So I think that in an ideal utopian world, we wouldn't need labels. That would be great if, if we were just able to really understand that each individual is unique and they have their own needs and we can modify for those things. That would be wonderful. Unfortunately. <laughs> That's not the world that we live in. And so, you know, I think that what we do, though, is we explain away things. And what I've seen, especially in in the gifted population, is we tend to go along this. We want to lean towards, oh, well, they're gifted. They're just kind of quirky or this is this reason or that reason or whatever. And we miss the opportunity to recognize what those difficulties are. And so for these twice exceptional kids, they go through life not understanding why they have this particular ability 
they understand things and they know things, but it's not reflected in their schoolwork, or they're always getting in trouble for discipline issues, or they are having a hard time making friends. And sometimes if we can say, listen, this is what your profile is. You are, you have these strengths. These things don't come as naturally to you. This is part of how you are wired. This is part of neurodiversity and you are neurodivergent and that makes you who you are. And that's okay. And when we destigmatize that, not only for the individual, but also just for society in general, we empower people to reach their potential in, in whatever way they feel is best for them. I love the way you laid that out. You said it much more succinctly than, than I do, do when I'm asked that question, but I'm very much in alignment with you on, on the role of labels. And I appreciate that perspective. And I'm, I'm wondering, what does it mean then to be neurodiversity affirming? So as parents who are supporting our kids in schools or just in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Yeah. Let me start from an educational standpoint and and from a mental health standpoint. You know, to be neurodiversity affirming means recognizing that the way that somebody interacts with the world is not inherently broken or wrong. It's just different. And we need to validate that and we shouldn't try to change people to fit what we consider normal because there is, there is no normal. Like when we talk about normal, we're talking about an average of the normative population, but everybody is very different. But when we try to get an adhd or to think themselves out of distraction, you know, we use like behavioral techniques to say, oh no, you just have to think about it this way without validating that their brain is wired differently. Or when we try to convince an autistic kid that that their struggles with social communication um, is just something that they need to think about differently or they need to do differently, you know, without really understanding and valuing and validating why they communicate and relate to people the way that they do, we're really causing a lot of trauma to to them because they start to doubt themselves. They don't believe that they are capable and we really need to make sure that that we are meeting them where they are and in order to be neurodiversity affirming when we meet them where they are we are listening to them and we are asking them what are the things that are important to you what are the things that you would like to learn to do better and how can i support you with that and let's find the ways that either you can self advocate to ask for those supports, you know, what are the things that work for me? But, you know, I, th I think what it comes down to is we tend to lean towards, as parents, educators, mental health professionals, whatever, we tend to lean heavily on behavioral interventions. Essentially, what we're doing is, you know, rewards and consequences. And we're going to, you know, modify somebody's behavior to fit into what we want them to be. When we do that, when we use behavioral interventions to fix neurological <laughs> struggles, struggles that are related to neurologically wired differences, 
we're not addressing the problem and we're causing more problems along the way. We are undermining that neurodiversity. And I think that that really just causes a lot of damage if we're not being neurodiversity affirming, recognizing that those differences are valuable and that we can work with people where they are. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. You know, as, as you're talking, I just want to give a shout out to um, Mona Delahook. If you all haven't listened to her book or read her book, listen to my interview with her. It's called Beyond Behaviors and very much talking about this idea of how we should not be trying to use behavioral interventions when this is how somebody is wired. So thank you for that. So you have been a very busy person 
I brought you on this show because I know you have a new book out about teaching twice exceptional kids. You also have another book coming out later this year about parenting twice exceptional kids. First of all, how do you how have you done all of this? Like <laughs> how are you managing? Well, first of all, the the teaching twice exceptional learners book, which was out from Free Spirit Publishing, and it was just released in August. It was actually supposed to have been published last year, and they pushed it back due to the pandemic. So it's not like I wrote both of these books simultaneously, although they are coming out closely together. And then, um, and so I wrote the one for Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners, and then I had um, this opportunity to write a book more geared for parents about how to collaborate with the schools, the way I kind of broke it down was I, there's a whole chapter about understanding neurodiversity and what it means to be neurodiversity affirming as a family. And then there's a second portion, which is breaks down like the five, five skills that I identify that really are important for parents to help their neurodivergent kids with. And then also a portion about collaborating with the schools. And so that book will be out in, in January, actually. They, they've also, that publication date has also gotten pushed back a couple of times, but I think January 2022 is, is pretty firm at this point. Listeners, I'll have links to these in the, in the show notes page. I'm not sure exactly when this episode's going to be released yet, but hopefully it, you won't have to wait too long for the Raising Twice Exceptional Children book. Um, the subtitle of that is A Handbook for Parents of Neurodivergent Gifted Kids. Can you give us a little tip or two from that book? You know, you said you have these five skills that you identified. Can you give us a takeaway or two? Sure. The five skills that that I talk about specifically, you know, and I kind of just went through and talk, thought about what are the things that I work with the clients in my office with? What are the questions that, that kids have, that parents have? And so I settled on um, executive functioning as a skill, emotional regulation, positive communication. And I connected that both with social relationships and also, um, you know, other situations where just communicating is important self-directed motivation so kind of self-regulation with motivation and then and then self-advocacy and one of the things that i found as i was going through this was i actually as i listed those you heard i did i listed self-advocacy as the fifth item but when i wrote the book i actually put that as the first chapter as of skill-based portion because self-advocacy is so important for neurodivergent kids and this is where when they have a level of self-awareness about what their needs are, going back to what we were talking about, like it's not about changing behaviors. It's about un- helping kids understand themselves so that they can navigate the world in a way that works for them. Like for me, as an adhd I understand what the accommodations are that work for me. And sometimes I have to ask people to modify things just as far as like what time of day, like I, I just kind of know, like at some point, I'm not going to have the the focus to do, do certain tasks. So I advocate for those things. But if I didn't learn how to self-advocate, if I didn't learn how to effectively recognize my needs, understand who to ask, understand how to ask, you know, I, I would really be struggling much more. And so um, I think self-advocacy is something that we can really help our kids develop from a very young age. And and it also is a great way to make sure that we're not enabling them. Because when we put them in charge of, of recognizing their needs and asking for those needs, we can then scaffold that support in a way that is helping them to become more independent. And so I think that that's one thing that 
sometimes we we talk a lot about self-advocacy, but I don't think we emphasize it enough specifically as a skill that we can work on with our neurodivergent kids. Yeah, and I agree with you. It is so important. And, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that a lot of differently wired students, when they go on to college, they, if they don't have the skills to self-advocate, they may, or that self-awareness or that kind of positive thinking around their neurodivergence, they may decline services. They may say, I think I can do this on my own. And that doesn't always work out well for them. So I think this is really important. And I also agree with you wholeheartedly that supporting our kids and that self-awareness piece and really just knowing deeply who they are um, on, on every level is really one of the greatest gifts that we could give to them. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I've really learned, um, both through the writing of the book, but just working with my clients in the office and also my own kids, as adults, we are so bad <laughs> at assuming that kids will pick up on things automatically. And whether they're neurodivergent or not, we forget that kids need to be explicitly taught skills, things that we don't really remember learning. And perhaps there are some of us, maybe we did pick it up along the way. But if we notice that our child is struggling with something and we sit down and we break it down with them step by step, it's just really effective. <laughs> and I think we underestimate, you know, I, um, in, in, in psychology, in my counseling practice, we, we call this intervention psychoeducation, right? We're, we're teaching them about the skill or whatever. <laughs> but I'm like, well, this is just called teaching. This is just <laughs> parenting. Like there's nothing fancy about it. But, but especially with bright kids who often talk like little mini adults and we forget that they're seven when they talk like they're 12 or <laughs> whatever it is, you know, we just have to sometimes take a step back and say, what is the actual skill that they need to build here? And and how can we break that down for them to help them learn it? Absolutely. And so you mentioned also emotional regulation and executive function. There are no two wee kids who are the same, but those tend to be two things that that is a common in, in struggling with those. And certainly this is what I hear from so many people in this community. I know those are very different things. So I said executive function and emotional regulation. Maybe pick one of those and and share a strategy or where your thinking goes to in terms of how parents and caregivers can support kids around one of these areas. It's interesting that you mentioned that those are two things that really kind of neurodivergent kids all have some various difficulties with that. And so as far as emotional regulation goes, I actually came up with a little a little acronym as I'm writing this book, which are which is not always my strength, but every once in a while I come up with it and I'm like, ooh, that's I can use that. That would be useful because I feel like that helps just everyone kind of remember it. And so I came up with what's what I call the the I can method for emotional regulation. So the acronym is I can I C A N. And basically what it really talks about is um, the I stands for investigate. So you have to have emotional literacy and awareness to recognize what those emotions are in order to have emotional regulation. So that's kind of the baseline there. The C is communicate. So that kind of relates to self-advocacy, but it also means like I just need to talk to somebody and let somebody know when I am either beginning to get dysregulated or when I am, you know, even if I'm already dysregulated, you know, find a way to communicate so that I can um, get through that situation as the situation you know goes forward. The A in ICANN is activate. 
So what are the coping skills that I can then activate? You know, once I've communicated what my needs are, what can I activate? And then N is navigate, getting through that situation and then kind of reevaluating to see what have I learned through that. You know, when I think um, emotional regulation is huge for all of us. I know when I am emotionally dysregulated as a parent, I struggle with parenting my own children. Um, and emotional regulation, like there's nobody in the world who who is always emotionally regulated, especially in the world that we live in now. Um, but our neurodivergent kids who often are in a situation that is really, um, they're not automatically getting through that. I feel like that is something that we can really help them with. And so just starting with that foundation, you know, investigating those emotions and, and figuring them out and then being able to talk about them, knowing the coping skills and then getting through it is, is something that we can really, it's a skill that we can build just like everything else. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I love your acronym and well done because as someone who's written a number of books and always trying to come up with them and failing miserably. I know, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, you got a good one there. That's awesome. <laughs> I always think of uh, Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel as like the acronym royalty. I don't know if you've read their mm -hmm. books, The Whole Brain yes, Child. Yes. I mean, they're just rife with like the best possible acronyms. So when we were planning for this podcast, I asked if you had any questions that you wanted me to ask. And one of the things that you said was, I think it's important to recognize and validate that parenting is tough and that nobody even quote unquote parenting experts has all the answers. So can you say more about that? Yeah. Well, let me, let me just say, say this. So, you know, I practice in the community where I live and I remember when I first started my counseling practice, I would 
feel like if I was going to go to the store, I needed to have like my makeup on. Or if I was with my kids, I really wanted to make sure that they were well behaved because I was I was thinking like, oh my gosh, people are going to see me with my children <laughs> and see me either emotionally dysregulated or them doing whatever it is that, <laughs> that they are doing. And they're going to go, really, this is the woman that is telling us <laughs> how to help our kids. And I was I was really afraid of that. And I'm so glad that I've kind of evolved over the years. I don't think it was, it was a pretty quick evolution. I think I got over that relatively quickly, but just normalizing that experience for people. It is hard to raise kids and it is especially hard to raise kids who um, don't, don't fit the same mold as a lot of other families and, and kids, you know, experience. And what I tell my clients is that I do not have all the answers, but what I can do is I can sit down and I can help you brainstorm. I can listen to what has worked and what hasn't. And we can try to create some different ways to approach a problem. And that's really what parenting is about, is just problem solving on a day-by-day basis. And you don't have to have all the answers and you're going to mess up because goodness knows I do. I mean, when you live in a household with five people... <laughs> all of whom are are ADHD and everyone has their own sensory needs and a variety. It's stressful sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, I just tell the kid, I'm like, just go beyond the electronics because I just can't do anything, you know, with this anymore, right, right now. But you just pick up and you go back the next day and, you know, it, it, it is hard though. It's, it's really hard. And I think people, expect it to be easy or feel like if it isn't easy, they're doing something wrong and they're not. Yeah. And I think I, I just appreciate you sharing that. And obviously you're getting lots of practice on everything that you're talking about in that busy household. And um, I think it's so helpful when I get to connect with people that I've admired and read their books for for years and relied upon. And then I'm like, oh, they're, they're in this with us. There's something just powerful in that vulnerability and and sharing. So Thank you for that. Before we wrap up, I, I wanted to just touch upon your book that that just came out in August, Teaching Twice Exceptional Kids in Today's Classrooms. And I'm just wondering, how has that been getting out into the world? Obviously, you know, we talked at the beginning about just a lack of awareness and understanding of who these kids are. Is this a book that you're hoping to get into mainstream classrooms? Do you find that there is an, a window of opportunity right now to really empower teachers to better understand and support two-week kids that they may have in their classrooms? Yeah, it's I think that one of my goals with writing that particular book was to bridge the gap between gifted education classrooms, general education classrooms, and special education classrooms, because twice exceptional learners are in all of those places. Research shows that if a kid is identified as gifted or a special education, rarely are they cross-referred. And I think that twice exceptionality is more understood in gifted ed world than in the general education classroom or the special education classroom. And and it's interesting because, especially when you're talking about SPED and gifted ed, they've really kind of developed as these islands where there's not been a lot of collaboration always, at least within the schools. But as we're recognizing the diverse needs of our kids, we we just need to have that communication. So I've been really excited and honored to for the people 
not just in the gifted education world who've been reaching out, but people in the special education world who've been reaching out and are asking about, you know, how can we train our teachers, you know, on how to how to support these kids, the awareness of just because a child is is in a, you know, has a 504 or has an IEP doesn't mean that they can't take honors or advanced placement courses, you know, those types of things. We, we're just broadening the options for them. And I do think people are ready to hear it. I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I feel like the neurodiversity movement has just, it's growing, but it's, and it's exciting to see those opportunities for kids open up. I love your optimism. And I, I would, I'm right there with you. Sometimes I just wonder if it's the people I'm hanging out with or the conversations I'm having regularly, but <laughs> I do see just more overall awareness. I think that perhaps that's one of the the gifts, if you will, of COVID is just an increased awareness of different ways of learning and and that more kids may be differently wired than people even knew and that there are different ways to to learn and yeah, and just different ways to kind of show their knowledge of things. Like I just feel like the world is opening up in that way. I hope that that is something that we can carry with us as we we go back into this school year and whatever kind of the future of education looks like. And you're just making such a contribution with your podcast and your books and you have a lot of momentum. And I just want to say thank you. I appreciate what you do in the world and really glad that you're a voice out there in this movement. Oh, well, Debbie, thank you. You've been leading the way. Thank you. Well, before we say goodbye, any last thoughts? And also, please let listeners know all the different places they can find you on the interwebs, on social media. Yeah, you can find me on my podcast, which is the Neurodiversity Podcast. Um, and that website is neurodiversitypodcast.com, or you can find it wherever. Um, I do spend way too much time probably on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at EmilyKM underscore LPC. So that's like licensed professional counselor. And you can find me all the places, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. For everyone out there who is navigating this world, I guess my, my, final thought is just, you know, keep with it. You're just by being here now listening to this, you are on the right track. And so that's all you can do is just one, one step, you know, at a time. That's a wonderful note to end this conversation on. Thank you. Thank you for those words. Thank you for everything you shared with us today. And yeah, good luck with the new book launch. We'll be following that and I will absolutely share it among the community. And yeah, thanks so much for everything you shared today. No, thank you so much for the chance to be here, Debbie. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. 
If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.